What if success within teams and organizations has less to do with efficiency, productivity, and high-performing individuals, and more to do with social sensitivity, candor, and psychological safety? Why might listening be one of the most valuable and underappreciated skills for the 21st century? I'm Dr. Nancy Ellen Miller, and this is another episode of Curiouser. In 2008, curators for the U-Turn Quadrennial for Contemporary Art in Copenhagen chose a message for their festival. Replace fear of the unknown with curiosity. On posters, the message was written backwards to be read with a mirror the festival's name, U-Turn, implied a radical shift in direction. It was dedicated to artists whose forward-looking ideas had been neglected by institutional hierarchy. To work up the courage to take a U-Turn into a radically new direction, it never hurts to adopt the spirit of an explorer or an avant-garde artist. But that approach may stand contrary to your organization's desire for efficiency. In 1991, management scholar and sociologist James March wrote about the ways that industrialization has favored efficiency over exploration. Exploration involves risk-taking, experimentation, and play. The routine processes that drive highly controlled bureaucracies often crowd out the fearless explorers, not to mention the creative minds. When there's only one best way to get the job done, there's no room to experiment, let alone collaborate and innovate, all needed in a world that's perpetually changing. When graduating from college, Afraid of where her career would take her, Harvard professor Amy Edmondson asked her personal hero, Buckmeister Fuller, for advice. Instead of offering her pointers, he offered her a job. When employed by the famous futurist and architect, Edmondson developed an interest in how leaders and organizations might improve the world. She writes in her book, Fearless Organization, Fear inhibits learning. Research into neuroscience shows that fear consumes psychological resources, diverting them from parts of the brain that manage working memory and process new information. This impairs analytical thinking, creative insight, and problem solving. In traditional hierarchies, it's acceptable for leaders to use fear and intimidation to motivate employees. That may have worked well on an assembly line, but the skills needed in today's workplace require new strategies. When employees are afraid to step outside the standard line of thinking of their organization's culture, they may hold back from speaking up. Fear goes unnoticed because it rarely announces itself. That fearful behavior may keep you safe, but Edmondson argues it also makes you underperform and grow dissatisfied with your work. 
No 21st century organization can afford to have a culture of fear, she writes. For knowledge to flourish, the workplace must be one where people feel able to share their knowledge. Psychological safety is not a new term. In the 1960s, two MIT professors, Edgar Schein and Warren Bennis, wrote about the ways that psychological safety helps people cope with the uncertainty of change. In the past few years, management and leadership scholars have put psychological safety at the forefront of their thinking on organizational strategy. In a study published in January 2016 in the Harvard Business Review, researchers found that the time spent by managers and employees in collaborative activities has ballooned 50% or more over the past 20 years. Three quarters of an employee's workday is spent communicating with colleagues. Psychological safety requires prioritizing candid and collaborative social behavior, not personal productivity and expertise. Today's most valuable companies realize that analyzing and improving individuals or increasing employee performance optimization has little impact on a business's overall success. Success now depends on employees developing their interpersonal communication skills and their ability to bond with colleagues. But many employees still feel that corporate cultures are not psychologically safe enough to point out mistakes, to offer new perspectives, or even to ask questions. One company, Google, that has spent billions of dollars analyzing data on what goes into successful teams, in 2012 gave a code name to their investigation into teamwork, Project Aristotle. Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, invented analytical thinking. He developed a system for analyzing causes and effects a system that proves effective in making decisions when circumstances don't change. But in volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous circumstances, using analytical thinking to solve problems isn't advisable. Instead, Aristotle believed that in a world that is changing, the best tool you have is your creativity to imagine possibilities. Imagining possibilities is more often than not, a social activity. When Project Aristotle statisticians, researchers, organizational psychologists, sociologists, and engineers gathered to analyze half a century worth of data, at first, no identifiable patterns emerged. But they were looking in the wrong places. The best teams were not made up of the best talent. Individuals on winning teams didn't share common characteristics or even have like minds. They were not unified by perspective or background. They were not motivated by the same rewards. But when researchers began to look at norms within groups, they began identifying the unwritten rules that governed them. One group prioritized falling agendas and dissuaded digressions, while another indulged in chit-chat and finishing each other's thoughts. Google discovered that the efficiency of a group was not as important as the bonds cultivated within them. 
The way that people treated each other was critical to performance. The most successful teams did not share the same organizational strategy, but they did share the belief that it was important to involve everyone and listen to each other's ideas. The common thread Project Aristotle discovered was in the unwritten rules that were maintaining an atmosphere of psychological safety. Effective teams permitted candor, questions, and mistakes. Amy Edmondson describes psychological safety as that which allows people to feel comfortable expressing and being themselves. Competition over who leads or an emphasis on critique hinders that sense that who you are and all your humanity is welcome on the journey. Google spent millions of dollars and crunched as many or more numbers to collect the data to prove what good leaders already know. Maintaining a consistent culture of listening and demonstrating sensitivity to the needs and feelings of all involved enables a team to perform well. Those basic lessons are taught in kindergarten, but they are equally valuable in adulthood. Writing for the New York Times in 2016, Charles Duhigg reflects on how the findings of Project Aristotle highlight a critical flaw in our mainstream working culture. We can't just be focused on efficiency, he writes. The obsession with employee performance and optimization has only been valuable insofar that it has given us a method for talking about insecurities, fears, and aspirations in a more constructive way. Success is often built on experiences like emotional interactions and complicated conversations and discussions of who we want to be and how our teammates make us feel. If there were ever any doubt that social sensitivity improves performance or that empathy advances insights, Stephen Tresiak and Anthony Mazzarelli dispel it in their book Compassionomics the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference. The authors prove that care has quantitative rationale. When healthcare providers take the time to make human connections, patient outcomes increase and medical costs decrease. Edmondson found that hospitals saved more lives when their employees felt comfortable admitting mistakes. Compassion and candor not only boost the immune system, they boost the economy. The hard data is in. When loneliness has become a threat to public health, when the trend towards optimization insists we be superhuman to fight for our place at the top, we need to invest in caring and compassionate human bonds. Mindfulness break, compassionate communication. The social brain, its ability to empathize, connect, collaborate, and co-create is critical to the success and fulfillment of any individual, project, or business. Developing strategies in compassionate communication, according to the research in neuroscience, involve exercising the right networks in your brain. 
Anyone can learn these strategies, but it takes practice and time to turn them into a habit. It's almost guaranteed that life will throw you into situations that require you to cooperate with people who think differently than you do. Learning how to connect with all kinds of people in more compassionate ways is an invaluable skill. It's a competency that can make you a better leader, colleague, parent, and friend. To communicate with compassion takes patience and practice. And there's no time like the present. Try this following mindfulness exercise and practice compassionate communication with whomever you meet. Focus on a value, specifically a value related to relationships or communication. It might be trust, love, connection, peace, integrity, whatever comes up for you right now as important, as a value in communication and in relationship. And when that value arises, immerse yourself in the awareness of that word and keep note of that word. We can return to it any time we lose sight of it. And before you enter a social situation, prepare yourself with a moment of mindfulness. Enter social situations relaxed, awake, and aware. Before you meet up with a group of people for a meeting, a colleague for a project, or even a friend or family member, just for fun, yawn, <sighs> stretch, <sighs> and take a few mindful breaths and return to the present moment. Before you enter that situation, notice any negative thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes that are lingering in your mind. And just let them go for now. If you find those thoughts reappearing, just notice them, set them aside. And if you need to, you can entertain them later, but let them go for now. Then visualize the face of the person you care most deeply about and savor that feeling of love, connection, and trust. When you remember someone you love, you often spontaneously soften your face and release this gentle smile on your face. And when you embody that expression, it acts as an invitation for others to trust you and to connect with you in an amicable way. Visualize the person or group of people you're about to meet. Imagine a kind, communicative conversation taking place, free of negativity and rich in trust. When you do speak to your colleagues, your friends, your clients speak slowly. There's a reason that most telephone numbers are seven to 10 digits long. It's challenging for the brain to remember more than 10 chunks 
of information at once. Try to speak in fewer than 10 words. If you need to use more, keep it at a maximum of 20. And notice the difference that slow, minimalist conversation. Notice the difference that makes. And then when other people speak, avoid the temptation to think about what you're going to say next. Don't worry about it. Just listen. Fully immerse yourself in the act of listening, non-judgmentally, taking in whatever is said, but also what is expressed through facial expressions, body posture, and tone of voice. listening. Now let's go deeper into the art of listening. In a 1942 letter, Simone Weil writes, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. And five years later, in Gravity and Grace, she muses further on the scarce resource of attention. Taken to its highest degree, attention is the same thing as prayer. It presupposes faith and love. Nobel laureate Herbert A. Simon was the first to coin our age as one dominated by the attention economy. A wealth of information, he notes, creates a poverty of attention. Journalist Kate Murphy argues that the modern epidemic of loneliness comes not from a lack of company, but from a lack of listening. Listening attentively isn't easy. What most people call listening is anything but. It takes far more patience than most of us realize. When you're interpreting someone's words, thinking of what to say next, waiting to talk, comparing what someone is saying to your own experience, fishing for answers or glancing at your watch or phone or Instagram feed, you're not listening. To further the confusion, there are few models of good listening to look up. Watch a news commentary and you'll likely see a one-way monologue or a shouting match. Late-night talk show hosts tend to shine with their charisma, but when their guests sit in front of them, they often appear as if they're waiting to tell a joke instead of investing and understanding. Social media tends to amplify the fury and the hyperbole. Measured dialogue gets less of a reaction. Acts of listening go largely unseen. They aren't shareable. They don't go viral. In school, communication is most often taught as rhetoric. But listening is not about persuasion. Listening is not about proving yourself. In a busy world, one where a full schedule and a full inbox might fill you with, well, pride, it's just as difficult to listen to your inner voice. Often our inner monologues run on autopilot, looping through plans, regrets, and worries. Few of us take time out from those autopilot thoughts to listen to what lies beneath 
the constant chatter. And yet there's no prescription for listening. It's not about nodding your head in acknowledgement or you're even looking into someone's eyes. It's not about making a show of listening. Often when you're listening well, you let go of your ideas of what it even means to be a good listener. If you're absorbed in listening, your goal is to understand what the person is saying, which naturally takes your attention away from yourself. Listening well means cultivating a listening mindset, which is more of a subtle art than cultivating specific behaviors. It means learning how to stay present, which is something you can practice wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Cultivating curiosity is also a way to improve listening. And the next mindfulness practice is to help you increase your skill of inquiry and relax into a deeper state of presence and awareness and to really embrace a listening mindset rather than adopt specific behaviors. Mindfully breathe, just letting go of tension. And when you listen, listen not only to the literal meaning of words, but to the emotional content that underpins someone's words. Move towards deep rather than surface listening. And when you're listening, if you notice a response or thought arising and you want to express it, to remember it, just be aware of it and exercise patience before expressing your thought. To listen deeply, practice sitting only with what is being said. And listening requires that you hear other people but it also requires that you observe them. Look for facial expressions. Pay attention to the tone of someone's voice, the inflection and the gestures of that person's hands, arms and shoulders without ascribing meaning too much. Just pay attention intuitively. Resist the urge to explain, to give advice, or even interpret what the other person has said. You don't need to give advice, you don't need to explain, and you don't need to interpret. Listening requires not that you solve someone else's problems, just focus on understanding the person as a whole. And when someone has spoken and naturally come to a pause, don't jump in with advice. Don't jump in with an interpretation. Ask a follow-up question or ask a connecting question. So if someone tells you a story, ask, how did that make you feel? Or tell me more about that. Resist any urge to jump into your own story or relate it to your own experience. Just get 
curious about that person's feelings and experiences. Ask open-ended and exploratory questions. How would you approach or what would you do if? Those are good ways to start. And also don't neglect listening to your own needs. So to fully listen to someone, you can't be thinking about dinner, never have an important conversation. When you're hungry, be sure that you don't listen on an empty stomach and that you've had enough sleep when you really need to listen to someone. And if you can't listen to someone, admit it. Take a time out and say, I'd love to come back to this conversation when I've had a meal and a good night's rest because I really want to be present for what you're saying and not think about my fatigue or my hunger. And that's it for today. So thank you so much for joining me in another episode of Curiouser. This has been Dr. Nancy Ellen Miller. So glad to have you here. And if you'd like a coach to help you with your compassionate communication skills, your listening skills, or a consultant to help your team, visit me at nancyellenmiller.com, N-A-N-C-Y-E-L-L-E-N-M-I-L-L-E-R.com. And I'd love to work with you to bring more listening and compassionate communication into your life or your workplace. That's all for now. And remember, stay curiouser.